Alrighty then. Well, hello and welcome to the Monster Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Tanner. I hope you had a fantastic week this week. I certainly certainly was busy. I had worked tens uh, Wednesday to Friday. And I am tired. And I had worked Saturday as well. So I am beat. And I had just woke up and did some research today. So I was so busy for this podcast. Um, what is going on today? There's a lot of stuff going on with the coronavirus. Everybody buying up all the toilet paper and hand sanitizer. But don't worry, you'll be fine. Just don't freak out, people. This week we are in this week's episode we are in Massachusetts known for the Red Sox Patriots and I'm not sure what their basketball team is what is their basketball team look at the oh yeah the freaking Celtics yeah the Boston Celtics Yep, had a really good team in the seventies. Okay, let's talk about these little creepy places. But first, little there's a place like a Bermuda Triangle place in Massachusetts called the uh, I forgot what's called. Uh, something Triangle. Read about it. Let's read a little bit about it. Uh, the spot isn't easy to find. It's only by crab walking across stones and painfully ducking under the rock that forms the ceiling of King Philip's cave. You can rest in a spot where Matacomet, the chief of the Massachusetts one of Panagogues, likely spent one of his final nights. A leader was slaughtered by one of his own men and beheaded by English settlers in 1678. In a war that pitted Alquin Nation against the white settlers. Um, in a, such a lovely spot, you almost forget you're in a quiet neighborhood full of upper middle class houses in the quiet Boston suburb of Norton, Massachusetts. But there's an undeniable chill in the air. The rock formation is one of many such sites in a 200 square mile area of the South Wisconsin, Massachusetts, local to paranormal enthusiasts called the Bridgewater Triangle. Uh, that's right. A mythic, mystical swamp zone within commuting distance of Boston. Uh, for centuries, locals have reported strange activity in and around the swamp. From Bigfoot sightings to Native American ghosts, strange orbs that weave through the trees, UFOs, unmarked black helicopters, satanic rituals, and cattle mutilation. In 1980, Boston Magazine reported that Police Sergeant Thomas Downey spotted a six-foot-tall winged creature while driving late at night on a country road. Some paranormal aficionados asserted that this was the mystical Thunderbird. Prominent in the local Native American mythology around the same time, famed cryptologist and folklorist Lauren Coleman, I'm going to talk to him so bad. Uh, 
brought Wilder attention to the area and its spooky reputation in his best-selling book, Mysterious America. Mysterious America. In it, he traced an area from Alban, Raboth, and Freetown, encompassing the swamp and surrounding towns, uh, delineating the miserable borders of Triangle for the first time. Ah. The Hokos the Hokomok Swamp, an enormous swath of marshland that comprises the single largest freshwater basin in all of Massachusetts, was the final holdout for Medica and his warriors in the days leading up to the annihilation by the English. By the end of King Philip's War, nearly 3,000 Wampaga men, women, and children were killed or sold into the slave ships bound for the West Indies. The landscape is dotted with stone monuments to their lives here. Their ghosts have morphed over centuries into foreboding fairy tales of fantastic creatures and feigned entities that, del- that tell us more about the ancestral guilt and paranoia of the conquerors than the natives themselves. At Profile Rock in Freetown, a natural granite formation resembling a human face watches over the woods. The locals claim that the natives believe that the base to be an image of Chief Massasoit. Philip's father, who was far friendly to the newly arrived English, today crude graffiti Mars the walls and the sacred cliff face. A few miles away in the hamlet of West Bridgewater, at the base of a wooden bridge, is hidden the solitude stone. Lost for nearly a century beneath moss and overgrowth, the stone bears a 150-year-old inscription thought to be carved by the Reverend Reverend uh, Timothy Otis Payne of the New Church of Jerusalem. A Christian sect founded on the principles of the occultist Emil Swedenborg, whose philosophies really influenced Freemasonry. In his auction of correspondence, Swedenborg asserted that the physical world was the result of spiritual causes, and the laws of nature's reflection of spiritual laws. The mysterious inscription reads, all ye who in future days walk by Nucatus stream, love not him who hummed his lay, cheerful to the parting beam, but the beauty that he wooed in this quiet solitude. Perhaps, 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 perhaps the most interesting spot in this area is the Dianton Rock. People of unknown origin carve figures of people, animals, and symbols in the flat side of the trapezoidal boulder, roughly the size of a small Volkswagen. The origin and meaning of the markings has been subject of debate for centuries, with theorists attributing the petroglyphs uh, to people as various in, as ancient Native Americans. Phoenicians, North, Norse, colonial Portuguese, and even medieval Chinese sailors. In the 1950s, a stone was removed from the river by a crane and deposited on the shore where a museum was built around it. Today, a small but knowledgeable fellowship of local citizens runs the museum and even organizes lectures exploring the history of the area and the theories surrounding the stone and its markings. The museum is open for self-guided tours by appointment only. On this particular day, I have not called for an appointment. Crestfallen, I was ready to quit the woods when I encountered two women, one strolling, one rolling heartily in an electric wheelchair along the wooden road. 
who told me that they were friends of the Dighton Rock Museum and they happened to have a key. They were kind enough to help me set up an appointment with the park service. The woman in the wheelchair didn't buy the single origin humdrum. Personally, I think it's from a multiple city of cultures. I agreed to meet them in the next morning. Oh, by the way, I want to say I is, I is a person who wrote this from uh, atlasobscura.com. Okay, uh, man, uh, it's a week, huh? Crazy. Alrighty, let's get to it. Uh, sorry. Next day, I was allowed to spend an hour with a stone. Indeed, the markings seemed to single a mismatch of cultures, with geometric shapes and humanoid figures that call Paleolithic paintings from Australia and Central America, as well as a formerly striking reputation of a deer and a seal. These primordial images come niggle with etches that appeared almost modern with a Roman letter R and F, clearly defined as the center of a stone, which may very well be colonial graffiti. But what she has inspired theories that the markings are proof that the lost Portuguese explorers or even Vikings made it to the New World. One theory from the 1700s states that the ancient Phoenicians have markings after marking it to New England shores and graves of stone with images from their cosmogony? Cosmogony? For the past, present, and future represented simultaneously in a symbol-strewn vignettes that bleed into one another on the tide-facing side of the stone. If you look closely, you can find the most recent carving, a signature made in the 1920s by a guy named Jesse, a friend of the Dighton Rock Museum, although careful to preserve an air of suspended judgment, cannot help but offer their own theories. Human figures on the left, they say, is a symbol of femininity and fertility. The symbol representing an X with an upside down B above it that say some size separation. Hmm. Uh, as far as I know, no one the theory is definitive. Says uh, Ramona Peters, director of historic preservation for the Massachusetts Winnipeg tribe. There is one theory saying that the Chinese left the artifacts. They would use this language of the people they were hanging out with before to account for the European letters on the stone. Another favorite theory heard around the Penix and public lectures at the Dighton Rock Museum posted was this the stone is the last record of a doomed Portuguese expedition to the area which, which ended with a violent confrontation with the local native peoples. Carvin, they say, was a historic record left by survivors of the doomed expedition. The symbols do not speak to us as much, offers Mrs. Peters, and by we, I mean our tribe and other native people. We don't have petroglyphs in our culture, but a symbol here. The symbols here, we do have petroglyphs in our culture, but the symbols here are not familiar. Regular representation in Wakwach art. Like the human form depicted on a stone or especially uncommon. The people, she says, do not put themselves above other things. Huh. It's cool. So, 
uh, pretty interesting. <coughs> uh, Brent Swe okay, so Brent Swaser wrote this article about the mystery of the Captain Black Flash. It's on Mysterious Universe. So shout out to him and his hard work. They, he wrote it uh, on August 18, 2016. Or maybe late before that, and maybe it just got published on the 19th. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? It was published on August 18, 2016. Okay. Uh, a common feature in the world of the strange and paranormal is that of the phantom being. Throughout history, there have been various stories, tales, and reports of bizarre, mysterious, shadowy figures that seem to lurk just beyond the periphery of our reality. Do you want to make some words? That's so hard to say. Sometimes, like, perfect. I can't even say it. Um, uh, to only make themselves known when they wish to instill a terror within our hearts. These shadow people and phantom figures seem to have been rooted themselves into our collective consciousnesses. And they are reported in both reality and myth across cultures. Sometimes threatening, sometimes merely creepy, but always frightening. They are un undeniable. Beings are difficult to classify and what seems to have stepped right out of our nightmares. One of the most enduring cases of such a phantom intruder is an intimidating, anonymous, black cloaked figure that stepped forward from such dark places to terrorize a small town in Massachusetts and which has remained a wraith, perplexing mystery to this day. It all began in October of 1939 in a town of Town on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, in the United States where frightened children began returning home from night with a scary story to tell. They claimed to have seen an extremely tall figure dressed in all black, which would appear out of nowhere to growl anonymously and to disappear just as suddenly in a flash. Some of these reports claimed that the thing had a hideous deformed face and glowing eyes. Whatever it was, they were seen. The ghoulish phantom certainly terrified them, and children were known at this time to come home crying and shaking inconsolably. Yet, as obviously upset and shaken as these children were, the adults did not take it all very seriously. After all, this was the Halloween season, and it all seemed like it just over imagination or someone playing a prank with a Halloween costume. Then one night, a woman named Mary Costa was walking alone, along shadowy streets past the city hall, when she claimed that an impossibly tall figure, around eight feet tall, had leaped out of some bushes to loom menacingly in front of her. A thing was described as having long, pointed ears and glowing eyes, which it used to calmly stare at the frightened woman for a moment before rapidly fleeing the scene in a series of inhuman, incredible leaps and bounds far beyond what a person should have been capable of. Costa claimed that she had run into a nearby cough shop excitedly telling people about what she had just seen and that some men had gone out looking for the mysterious intruder but had found nothing. Man, so that's creepy, right? Freaking dude's just walking down the street and you're like, he pops out like this really tall guy, person, thing, whatever. 
pops out and stares at you for like a second and it runs back. It's like, it's like, jumps out like, like Tigger. A really creepy Tigger. I don't know. Bad jokes. I'm sorry. I'm just horrible. Anyway, okay, let's get it. Other police did not take this report very seriously at first. It was soon followed by similar accounts by other adult citizens. In all the cases, and shadowy apparition which was claimed to be dressed in all black, complete with a flapping black cape and to possess glowing eyes that were either red or silver, as well as long pointed ears that were sometimes said to be of a silver color. It was also said that the weird buzzing noise, like a very large insect, occupied it. Others said it would let out a malevolent, unsettling laugh that would describe that was described as having an earthly timber and tone. It's also known for being extremely fast and agile, as well as for its reported superhuman jumping ability. With the witnesses claiming that it could easily leap over high fences and can jump over 10 feet in a single bound. Uh, curiously, police would often get different reports from different areas of known practice of town practically at the same time, suggesting that the thing was either incredibly fast, could t- somehow teleport, could fly, or there was more than one of them. While most of these encounters involved a mysterious dark phantom merely staring of or terrorizing witnesses before doing for before bounding away, something it seemed to take a great p- pleasure in doing, others were slightly more harrowing. In one case, a man named Charles Farley claimed that he had actually shot at the creature and hit it, but that it had been totally unfazed by the gunshot, simply laughing maniacally. Mechanically? No. For uh, nimbly jumping over a high fence with a single leap. Another man reported that he had seen, had suddenly confronted and cornered by the entity, had instinctively thrown a punch at it. Being was uh, claimed to have caught his fist in his own hand and then proceeded to crush the man's hand, breaking it before hur- hurling him to the ground effortlessly as if he were an unwanted toy. Yet another such violent encounter happened when an- another ma- witness claimed that a creature had lashed out to strike him with breath- breathtaking superhuman strength, sending him flying through the air. And there were other adult males who also reported being easily overpowered. By the apparition, others reported. Others, even more far-out accounts, claimed that the thing had shot blue fire at them from its mouth. Before long, the town had indeed other areas were buzzing with likes of people. What people were starting to call the Promise Town Phantom, the Black Phantom, the Phantom Feed, the Devil of the Dune, and the Black Flash, which all, which was the most. Was the name that the media would go with and would become the most popular name for the bizarre spectral thing lurking about. Instead, there were a variety of sensitized reports of the Black Flash at the time in newspapers and on radio newscasts, which alone uh, with, the cre- uh, along with the increasing number of signs re- really whipped people up into a panic fi- fever. Uh, speculation can ran rampant what it could be but some say it was just a prankster or peeping town others say it was some sort of supernatural entity such as a ghost or demon with an incurable agenda not of this world 
Some particularly religious folks thought it was the devil himself. Making things even worse were the bizarre and unsettling events orbiting the whole Black Flash fiasco. This was not let on after the town when the 1938 Orson Welles CBS radio broadcast of the War of the Worlds was aired. On Sunday, October 30th, 1938, sending many parts of the country into a mass frenzy panic. Okay. Further causing stress and uneasiness was the onset of World War II and looming shadow of violence inexorably pulling America in, which seriously weighed on, weighed on the nation's mind at the time, as well as the devastating effects of the Great Depression. There were various other world weird goings on in the time, the immediate era as well, such as news of the sea monster that wafted up a shore near World End and later be identified as a rotting basket shark, basking shark. As well as that of a serial or a serial, a serial arsonist who had terrorized the town in this. Okay. Town in the September before the appearance of the Nomic Black Flash. All of these Confergian events, no doubt, caused the Black Flash story today to pulse, grow, and become sensationalized with its various elements embellished. Exaggerated with Norway over dramatized news reports, radio shows, the era where it looks like on, where it looks where it took on a life of its own in the middle of a populace whose imaginations were primed and their nerves frayed. The story typically goes that the Black Flash would supposedly go on to torment the people of Promise Town for seven years. With reports going all the way up to 1945. In one such incident from November of 1945, a group of police officers apparently saw the phantom leap over a 10 foot high fence as they went to a schoolyard to investigate a series of sightings there. The following month, a group of children claimed that they had been attacked by the Black Flash and escaped into their house to seek refuge, where they cowered as it banged on the walls and rattled doors. One man, by the name of Louis Gennard, allegedly got a hot pan of boiling water thrown at the creature, which sent it, which sent it screaming off into the night and would mark this as a probably the last reported incident of the Black Flash. These incidents up to 1945 are written by the researcher Joe Citro in his book Passing Strange, where he claims they were recounted by him by the folklorist Robert Cahill, who wrote of the Black Flash in a book called New England's Mad and Mysterious Men on which he says the Phantom terrorized Provincetown for years. These details provided by Citro and Cattill have been widely referenced for stories on the Black Flash, but there have been some disagreement with this timeline. According to one of the foremost researchers of the Black Flash from Phenomenon, paranormal researcher Theo Pajims, sorry, forgot the name wrong. This uh, timeline is false, and he claims that these that these are details added later. The Kellen's store work was substantially embellished, and the Black Flash really only struck for a few weeks for, van for vanishing. He wrote a heavily researched article in 2007 for Anomaly Journal in the United States and said of his finding, I found the original accounts of the promise and the promise town advocate, and with the help of these accounts, 
I was able to reconstruct a clear timeline to overthrow and throw out a large lot of the stuff that had grown into the Black Flash over the years. But it was clearly fabrication. One of these inaccuracies was the timeline that the Black Flash did not strike between 1938 and 1945 as it often alleged, but only for a few weeks in 1939. Whatever timeline is correct, the question still remains, what was the Black Flash? Many theories have been proposed on the answer to this. It has, been gone un has not gone unnoticed that the Black Flash was in many similar ways similar to the another murderous phantom that had allegedly terrorized parts of Great Britain in 1837, a phantom known as Spring Hill Jack. These are several similarities between the two entities, such as glowing eyes, a black cloak, and the startling ability to make enormous leaps and bounds. This is, has caused some to suggest that the Black Flash and Freehead Jack were one in the same, or that they were the same sort of entity, but it could also mean that the, some, some details from reports were embellished or added to make it seem that way. Indeed, the relentless sensationalism of the case at the time, the embellishments, additions, and exaggerations made over the years since then, as well as the substantial lore it has accrued and surrounded itself with it, have made it difficult to separate fact from friction when it comes to the case of the Black Flash. Even researchers on the phenomenon can't seem to agree on what really happened or how long it lasted. Other ideas are that it was a, some form of mass hysteria or collective delusion with the media hype and spooky stories escalating until that everyone in its grips or even it was some sort of demon, ghost, or vampire. Embellishments made and everybody's taking with the tale in the news at the time and through rich oral tradition since it is hard to know what part or details of the stories are even real. So it's hard to say how much merit any of these ideas have. There is simply no real concrete evidence that favors any one of these. For these parts, everyone For uh, further parts, authorities at the time were certain that it all stemmed from a malicious prank. Although news of the Black Flash was everywhere, and many believed it was a real mysterious apparition, it seemed that actually a lot of people in the province towns itself incurred that it was most likely jokesters or peeping Tom. Chief of Police Anthony Tavers even claimed that have known who the perpetrators were and how they did it. According to Tavers, it was four local boys who were playing a local Halloween tricks to scare everyone. And he had accomplished it by one boy standing on another's shoulders and then covering themselves with a large black cape 
and wearing a mask. Two sets of boys were claimed to have created their costumes and appearance in order to make it look like they were teleporting or dashing with perturbed uh, natural speed around town. Tavros also said that Tavros also said they had even gone so far as to speak with the alleged culprits and their parents, and this is why the whole phenomenon had ceased. However, he did not release the names of the perpetrators, and no one has ever claimed responsibility for supposed hoax. A statement made by Tra uh, Travers was also apparently not even really an official police pronouncement. The Black Flash potent jumping ability, agility, strength, and toughness, other reported powers aren't really addressed with this theory either. This has led some to suspect that Towers merely making up the story to calm people down or to cover up what's really going on. In the end, we have no way of knowing for sure. In the end, it is unclear to the Black Flash what the Black Flash was. It, it isn't even really clear which elements of the story are true, which are, which are complete fiction, or even how long the phenomenon actually went on for. The story has been picked up and written about in numerous articles and books, which often give different or even conflicting contrary information. With all the tales and the mismatch of misinformation out there on the Black Flash of Promise Town, just about all we can say for sure is that something was terrorizing the town at, in at least 1939. What that was, whether a prank, a mass illusion, a ghost, demon, alien, or vampire, or something else altogether. No one really knows, probably never will, and the mystery of the Black Flash will likely remain in the shadows within the realm of speculation, even as its legend grows. Ooh, spooky scary. Spooky scary skeletons. Man, Cape Cod. Cape Cod seizures. Dude, I've been like binging the crap out of like motion radio. This is a podcast with uh two wrestlers from Chattanooga, and they talk about sports and like geek stuff. Out, okay, uh, every Monday and Thursday, I think. It's great. It's really funny. It's really interesting. They were like, uh, I think they started way back. I think they started last year or somewhere before that. Maybe before that. But, um, they start making like every week to do like, uh, NFL picks for games. And it's funny. Listen, make pick, um, make picks for games. Um, post haste, especially with Green Bay, because I'm a Packers fan. And poor Dolphins, huh? That crappy 1970s fucking defense they have. So next up we have a uh, the beast of Truro. Who or what is Truro? Is it a mountain lion preying on local pests and livestock? 
a dog or a pack of dogs, an ocelot, a lynx, a wildcat, or some, or some yet identified, an identified creature. The purported beast, Cape Cod's answer to Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, has been a major topic of conversation news articles since last fall. This is an article from 1982, by the way, from New York Times. The first evidence that some unknown predator was loose came when a dozen dead cats were found in the same area in Truro in September. Two weeks ago, a 175-pound hog was so badly mauled, its flanks ripped by deep claw marks, and a chunk of flesh ripped out of its neck that it had to be killed. A few days later, two pigs were clawed in their their pens in another part of town. Initially, the culprit was thought to have been a dog or a pack of wild dogs on the loose. The people started reporting seeing a large furry creature that they did not recognize. Others heard strange noises in the night. The most dramatic description from William and Marsha Medeiros of Truro, they said they were taking a walk about three months ago on a bike path, on a bike path near Head of the Meadow Beach in Truro. An animal appeared 50 feet in front of them. Definite long rope like tail. Mr. Mineros continued. My husband put his arms out to stop me. He said, You see what I see? Together we said, It's not a fox. It had a very long, very definite long rope like tail, like the letter J. It hit the ground and went, went up. We figured it was about as tall as, as up to our knees and weighed 60 or 80 pounds. We were frightened and froze. He was in the path and didn't see us at first. And we made some, as we made some noise, he turned and we saw his face with short ears. Mr. Maneros left the path to get a branch to protect him. The creature did not rush for cover, but Maneros said, walked slowly and casually along the path around them before disappearing into the nearby woods. The Maneros are sure they saw a mountain lion. What well, we saw for his, his, um, the description, said Mrs. Maneros. Our first couple was reluctant to report what they had seen. Who would believe it? Mr. Maneros said. Others have reported hearing strange cat-like cries in the night. Uh, Edward Ocelot, a Turman selectman and health officer, and said a New York man called in mid-December to say he has seen something resembling a mountain lion in North Truro. Uh, Mrs. Ocelot and seashore officers have made its efforts to abide the culprit by its tracks near the pig pens. Both, but in the sandy soil, they could not find no clear impressions. Uh, Mr. Oswald said the general uh, consensus is that the beast is a dog or dogs, but I don't know if you can put that together with what happened. Could it be a mountain lion? That seems far out, but it's not impossible, he replied. First on mountain lions, records on mountain lions, the mountain lion, also known as a cougar or panther, is said to be the largest cat in North America. Males can be six feet long with a three foot tail and overrun a length of more than nine feet and weigh more than 200 pounds. Records indicate the last known mountain lion in Massachusetts was uh, killed in 1958. It's believed the eastern mountain lion is probably extinct. Churro is seen as an unlikely but not impossible habitat for a wild creature such as a mountain lion. 7% of the town is undeveloped land, part of the Cape Cod National Seashore. Packs of wild dogs occasionally kill deer in the woods. 
there's enough small game and domestic pets or wild animals to, to subsist on. Uh, Donald Roadhaven of Wellfleet, who formerly worked at the Bronx at St. Allen Zoo's in New York, and is, is familiar with how to have wild animals, says the mode attack most suggests a cat than a dog. Dogs are not slashed like a cat, he said, many have left by a camper. Uh, Mr. Roadhaven said he believes that so-called beast of Turo may be a mountain lion, a slot, or a lynx. They may have escaped or was left behind by a summer camper. Both mountain lions and ocelots are for sale, he said. The official view in Turo holds that the tax on the page were by a dog or dogs. Thomas Kane, Truro's assistant, Tom Clark, said, I think it's a figment of imagination. People I know, people whose opinions I respect, think the damage was done by dogs. At one point, they were taught that the beast was a fisher. The following got so ridiculous that I ignored it. Others, however, respected the beast to tracking it. I'm going to write this. Alright, let's go next. Uh, Probably mountain lion came wandering in the Truro area. Well, let me think. Let me know what you think. Leave comments. Let me know in the Facebook group. Which you can find on Facebook. Just find a link to the Facebook group at facebook.com slash podcast. By the way, join, get updated on stuff, or follow Twitter. The monstrous sea serpent of Glosher. Could it be about? They told me of of a sea serpent or a snake. A light coiled up like a cable upon a rock at Cape Ann. A boat passing by with English on board. Two Indians. They would have shot the serpent. But the Indians dissuaded them, saying that if they were not killed outright, they would be in danger of their lives. Report it. Report by John Jocelyn in 1638 was one of the early signs of animal that would haunt the coast of New England, especially the coast of Closure, for more than three centuries and be seen by hundreds of people. Report is a of a creature that science says does not exist, a sea serpent. The harbor of Glosher, Massachusetts is located just north of Boston on the lower part of Cape Ann, uh, which juts out into the Atlantic Ocean. Glosher has always been a seafaring town. Its harbors is well protected from Atlantic storms, making it a destination for ship sailing cargo. In the 17th century, fish abandoned Uh, off the coast ready to be caught by enterprising and brave men willing to go to the sea in boats. If any group of people should have been known uh, Okay, sorry if I keep stopping. Uh, Uh, if any group of people should have known 
tweet and your local inhabitants. It should have been the fishermen and sailors of Glosher. Uh, Ephesidiah Turner reported the following incident with a similar creature off land of Massachusetts three years later. Some being on Ye Great Beach, gathering of calms and seaweed, which have been cast thereon by Ye Mighty Storm, despite a most wonderful serpent, a shorty way of, off from Ye Shore. He was big around and he thick as part as wine pipe. I did not affirm that he was 15 fathoms, which is 90 feet or more in length. Uh, a most wonderful tale, but ye witnesses be credible, and it would be of no account to them tell an untrue tale. We have likewise heard yet keep, and ye people have seen a monster like unto this, which didn't here come out of ye land, which much to ye tear of them, ye did not see them. Although sea surface incidents occurring occasionally off the coast of Cape Ann and the rest of New England during the 17th and 18th centuries, it was until the 19th century that the arrival of sea surface, sea surface off the coast became a nearly seasonal phenomenon. The real bit action started in August of 1817 when two women claimed they had seen the creature swimming into the harbor. The same sea serpent was seen at almost the same time by the captain of a coasting vessel. A few days later, Mrs. Ominous Story said she saw what appeared to have been a tree trunk washed up on the rocks of a town pound island slides in the harbor. As she watched it through the telescope, it moved and was looked again. It was gone. We all know real life can suck sometimes, and your boss accidentally seeing you in your underpants on Zoom last week doesn't help any. That's why Reluctantly Codependent Sisters, the Shira and Rashalia, keep you enthralled and in stitches every week with their podcast, Legendary Africa. Every Monday and Friday, we take you on a journey of mythical lands, magical objects, and monstrous creatures, both ancient and modern. Find Legendary Africa on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you feed your ears. And remember, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. William reported seeing a creature saying his head was as broad as a horse or more or, or more so, but, but not quite as long. The same day, Anonymous Story also said the cre- saw the creature. Uh, it was between the hours of 12 and 1 o'clock when I first saw him. said he continued in sight of, for an hour and a half. I said I was standing on the shore and was about 20 rod from him when he was nearest to me. His head appeared shaped much like that of a sea turtle and carried his head from 10 to 12 inches above the surface of the water. His head at the distance appeared larger than that head of any dog I have ever saw. From the back of his head to the next part of him that was visible, I just I should judge to be three or four feet. He moved very rapidly through the water, I should say a mile or two at most, in three minutes. I saw no bunches on his back. On this day, I did not see more than 10 or 12 feet of his body. Two days later, on August 12th, Shipmaster Solomon Allen III saw the Gloucester Sea Monster Serpent. His head formed something like that of a rattlesnake, but nearly as large as the head of a horse. When he moved on the surface of the water, his motions was slow at times, 
playing in circles and sometimes moving straight forward. The creature was even shot at two days later by ship's carpenter Matthew Gaffney from a boat. I had a gun and I took good aim. I aimed at his head and I think I must have hit him. He turned toward us immediately after I fired. I thought he was coming at us, but he sunk down and went directly under our boat. It made his appearance at about 100 yards from where he sunk. McCaffrey also mentions the motion of the creature through the water as was vertical, like a cow pillar. Uh, there were 18 signs of the sea monster, sea serpent that year. Most from Gloucester, but a few from different parts of New England. Most of the reports were, were very similar. A snake-like creature, 60 to 100 feet in length, the head of the sides of a horse, and the body of a diameter of a barrel. Observers noted that the creature swam with a vertical motion, and his body appeared as humps behind him. This uh, observers noted that the creature swam with a vertical motion. Okay, it's this report from Clifford Cheever Flouch aboard the United States Schooner Science. Its color is dark brown with white under its throat. Its size we could not accurately ascertain, but its head is about three feet in circumference, flat and much smaller than his body. We don't see his tail, but from the end of his body to the farthest permanence was not far from 100 feet. I speak with, with a degree of certainty by being much accustomed to measure, estimate, distance, and length. I counted 14 bunches on his back. The first one, say 10 or 12 feet from his head, others about 7 feet apart. They decreased in size towards the tail. These bunches were sometimes accounted with, sometimes without glass. Mr. Malborn counted 13. <laughs> Mr. Blake, 13 and 14, and the boatman, the same number. His motion was partially vertical and partially horizontal, like that of a freshwater snake. I have uh, been much acquainted with snakes in arterial waters. The motion is the same. Uh, reports of the New England coast continued strong through the 19th century. 12 science in 1839, 9 in 1875, and 13 in 1886. Total of 190 for the whole 100 years. Sea surface reported became the first uh, fewer, fewer than 20th century, a total of 56, and most of those before 1950. Um, so what was the most such reports are attributed to simply misidentification. Dolphins leaping a single file might look like a series of humps. A 16-foot-long elephant seal might look like a sea monster to someone unfamiliar with a giant seal. In many of the Gloucester reports, though, observers at first felt they were viewing something quite normal, but then changed their minds when they got closer. Opposite to what you would expect in a case of misidentification. For example, this report by John Brown published in 1817. I discovered something about three or four miles distance, about two points on the weather bow, which appeared to be appeared as a mass as it rose and sunk in a particular manner, once in about eight or ten minutes. 
get the best of the direct leak for it, and after looking at it with my glass, I turned to my mate that it was a wreck. I said, I can see timber. Freaking up. Oh, I said, you As we approached nearer, I found what appeared to be like timbers to be a number of purposes, and blackfish playing and jumping around a large sea serpent, which we had were supposed to be the mast. Some sea serpents reports are hoaxes, either perpetrated by individuals or, in many cases, by newspapers. Hoax journalism is an art which was live in the 19th century, but has almost disappeared today. While many of the reports have been found through period newspapers, others show up in private letters, which indicates that they were not part of a hoax journalism story. Even in the case of the newspaper stories, many references to the Gloucester Sea Serpent seem to be like kind of sensationalism that was often a part of hoax articles. So how do we explain that many times at Gloucester, along with the coast of New England, was there really a sea serpent swimming along the shores? The idea, the idea that there might be such a thing as a sea serpent is not a process as it is sound at first. Uh, we continued awesome place we certainly know that the military of year uh, we certainly know that millions of years ago at the time of dinosaurs rolled the land giant marine reptiles some 80 feet in length rolled the seas some people have suggested that in some versions of these creatures managed to survive the great extinction at the end of the Cretaceous era that killed dinosaurs they think that the snake-like body or it might be a long neck of a Elomosaur or the back of a Mosasaur. Uh, the Gloucester Sea Serpent might not necessarily be Cretaceous leftover, although plenty of sea snakes are alive today living in tropical waters. While these are much smaller than any sea serpent reported in New England, one water snake does not does nearly reach the size as mentioned the anaconda. Anacondas live in South American waters and have been reported at up to 37 feet in length, the girth of a telephone pole. Last well, big. Uh, they most certainly live in fresh water and rarely venture into the open sea. However, it is so incredible to believe that there might be a cousin of Anaconda, which is twice the length in diameter and lives in the open sea. Uh, if the reports, if the Gloucester reports are genuine and accurate. Why are there so few in the 20th century and almost none in the past few years? J.P. O'Neill, author of The Great New England Sea Serpent, theorizes that the generation of the once fertile fishing areas off of New England by overfishing may have caused the creature to find another place to eat or even go extinct. Ironically, that would have mean that 100 years ago there was once a population of sea serpents, but now they are gone. Last signs in New England was off the coast of Marshfield, Massachusetts in 1962. There were no reports in the 1970s or 1980s at all. With careful protection of the fisheries, though, hopefully the population of fish may rebound. Will it be in time to help the closer sea serpent? Assuming, of course, that this creature really ever really existed at all. Perhaps there is some, perhaps there is some hope. In 1987, after one over three years of silence, a report came from Fortune Bay, Newfoundland. 
It turned its head and looked right at us. All we could see was its neck six feet long, a head like a horse, but his dark eyes were on the front of his face. Perhaps the sea serpent is not dead, but us waiting to turn to his summer feeding grounds near Glacier Harbor. Challenge yesterday. I was at work. Man, it's so cool. Big Marion. She's so good. Hope she's doing alright. Turn her off. Uh, Buck Wudgies, myth or monster? Co-host man, you talking? My voice is, yeah, yeah. Take a breather every once in a while, you know. Oh, okay. How you doing? How's your weekend? How's your week? Let me know on Instagram or Twitter, whatever. Facebook. You know, I work in the Facebook group. Well, you can find a Facebook group on the page on the podcast Facebook page at facebook.com slash monsterless podcast. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash monsters monster legends podcast. Make sure it's there. Okay. Anyway, uh, this house is in the corner of Massachusetts lies Bristol County, an area known locally as the most haunted place in New England. The injury that sleeps there has been rumored to come cause haunted schools, ghostly armies, and unexplained suicides and murders. Forest areas of the area. Uh, forested areas of the country have long been known to gain lightly of unexplained animals from Bigfoot and Thunderbirds to large snakes and odd bear-like creatures. For the past 40 years, calls have flocked there and their activities, often criminal, have filmed have filled the blotters of local law enforcement. All the unknown horrors that lie that live in Bristol County, the most feared is not animal or ghosts or the member of a cynic or cult. I walked the forest, but a demon only two feet high. And the history of the era represents the history of our American society. These puckwudgies are the gatekeepers of our darker side. 
The Pukwudgies have often haunted the forests of Massachusetts since before the first European settlers even thought about setting out for a new land. For, century, for centuries, they tormented the local Native Americans and creeped their way into creation myths and oral history. They could easily be passed off as legend, and in fact, their physical description is much like mythological creatures from another cult, cultures in other times. The difference is these demons jumped from the page and evolved as the people around them changed, changing from reluctant helpers to evil tormentors. The difference is these demons are still even are still seen by people today. Most cultures' mythology have referenced to small monsters that have a strained relationship with humans, and in many ways, it makes sense. While large monsters have their places in our fears. The immunitive creatures find their way into the shadows of our rooms and under our beds. Their names, natures, chains, but there are always common threads that link them together. Some are called monsters and roam the land looking for human food and connecting anyone they can find. Others are called demons, foul spirits that feed off the negative and expose the sins of man. Remember, Referring to one, its clarification gets blurred, and these two worlds become interchangeable, perhaps showing us how closely associated these monsters are with evil. Veterans returning home after World War II call talk to gremlins tearing apart their planes or getting to Jeep engines and causing havoc. Hindus speak of the Rakhasas or the Night Wanderer who eats human skin and jumps into the dead to possess them. Africans tell stories about the Aloko, who lure people with people with beautiful music and want to devour them after they have been bewitched with an even ever-expanding jaw. Ooh, it's creepy. Reminds me of that one episode of uh, Smallville when that girl was freaking out shakes Number like ten eight with the mirrorites and your draw like drop down. It's fucking awesome. Uh I don't sure who that was. It's villain was that. Although passed off as a week's worst of fiction, imagination, trolls and dwarves have existed in people's fears for centuries. They have been they have become lovable and noble now, but the original stories quite <sighs> Quarter of these, um, of these monsters are anything but fairy tales with happy endings. Trolls are notorious for ambushing travelers and destroying whole families on a whim. While some are described as giants, humps, and one eye, many older cultures, especially in Scandinavia, describe them as being the size of a plump child. Dwarfs have always been small, and their manners much better. But the end result seems to be the same. Like the troll, they are known as metal and stone workers, but unlike their fleshy counterparts, dwarves seem to avoid human contact. While they would prefer to be left alone and impeded upon their work, they become like caged dogs. One variation of the dwarf is a Tommy Nooker, Tommy, no- Tommy Knocker, sorry, who lives in mine shafts and is sometimes said to be the ghost of miners who perish in the line of duty and are doomed to work for an attorney. They are known to cause cave-ins and fires in the shafts. 
Perhaps the most famous of small nightmares are seen by the Irish. Ferries patrol roads in Ireland, causing trouble problems for any traveler who stays in the, from, straight from the path. They live in hills or mounds and dance around fires. If a human comes across their mounds or sees their dancing, they are caught and held captive. Even a beloved leprechaun was once a malicious spirit before he was Americanized and transformed into the gold keeper he is today. Exposure to a nature, pleasure to nature, seems to find feed these tales. And the more society depends on the earth for its needs, the closer relationship people have with the natural world around them. The more these stories pop up in, in this country, the people the first settlers found had a close, not friendly view of small dangers around them. Cherokee have a mirror image demon known as the Nui Donsti, sorry, or little people that look and talk like Cherokee, but only a few feet high and have long hair that touches the ground. Although most people cannot see them, they're known to throw objects, trip hunters, and abduct people who wander off. In Canada, they are known as Menegishi, uh, uh, look much like that. Uh, look like the classic alien gray. The Wonopodnog Nation's dominant Native American tribe in Massachusetts and southern New England had a monster who still dominates the landscape they once roamed. The Pukwudgie made its first appearance in the oral folklore of the people of Cape Cod. But recent sightings have forced people to rethink their mythological creature. Standing between the two standing between two and, feet, and three feet tall, Pukwudgie looks much like a modern idea of a troll. His features mirrors those of the Americans in the area, but the nose, fingers, and ears are large and the skin described as being gray and or washed out, smooth, and at times have been known to glow. What makes these creatures dangerous is the multitude of magical abilities they use to torment and emulate people. They can appear and disappear at will and are said to be able to transform into other animals. They have possession. They have possession of uh, magical poison arrows that can kill and create fire at will. They seem to often be related to a tall, dark figure, often referred to in modern times in shadow people. In turn, the Pukwudgie's troll Taipai Wakans, which are believed to be the stills of their American Americans they have killed, they use these lights to entice new victims in the woods. So they may kidnap or kill them. In European folklore, these bowls of energies are known as willow the wisps and are said to accompany many paranormal occurrences. Modern paranormal investigators call them orbs, and catching one on film is the gold standard of field research. Legends of the Pukwaji began in connection to Mashwap, a creation giant believe by the Wapanog, oh, sorry, I can't, uh, to create most of the Cape Cod. He was believed by the people and the Pukwudgies were jealous of the affection they had for him. They tried to help the Wapak, but their efforts always backfired until they eventually decided to torment them instead. They became a mischievous and aggravated, mischievous and aggravated Natives until they asked Quaint Mushup's wife for help. 
While Shrub collected as many as he could, he shook them until they were refused and tossed them around New England. Some died, but others landed, regained their minds, and made their way back to Massachusetts. Satisfied he had done his job, sorry, and pleased his wife, Mushrop went away for a while. And his assassins, the Pugwudgies, had returned. They again changed their relationship with the Wapogs. They were no longer a nuisance, but began kidnapping children, burning villages, and forcing the Wapog deep into the woods and killing them. Quant again stepped in, but Mushrop, very, being very lazy, stepped his five sons to fix the problem. Uh, but Wajis lured them into a deep grass and sh- shot, uh, them dead with, shot them dead with arrows. With magic arrows. And Rage Quaint and Mushrop attacked his maze they could find and crushed them. But many escaped and scattered throughout New England again. The Pukwudgies regrouped and tricked Mushrop into the water and sh- shot him with their arrows. Some of us said they killed him, while others claimed he became discouraged and depressed about t- the death of his sons and Mushrop disappeared from the mythology. Pukwudgies remained, however, but something odd happened. The time of the tales of the monster are a map through the history of the Native American relationship with the European settlers. The death of the five sons lines up with the very first settlers and the flight of Mushrop is told on side of changing of attitudes along new neighbors. What is always seen in the negative light became the foot soldiers of the devil, which many explain their modern connection to shadow people. As many Native Americans began to convert to Christianity and miss involved, the Pukwudgies were responsible for an evil in the village. In the hand of Satan on the tribe, uh, people who spent time in the forest in New England tell you Pukwudgies are not symbols but real horror. They Sales talk people. They continue to see them, and the world develops around them. The monsters remain unchanged and as dark as ever. Joan was walking her dog through the forest, state to the state forest in Freetown, Massachusetts, on a cool Sunday, Saturday morning in April, to when he saw the, the monster. As she and her dog said, walked down the path, she became anxious and strayed a few feet into the woods. Joan followed him in and stopped short. Her dog was lying completely flat in the leaves on a rock ten feet away with a pukwudgie. She described him as looking like a, what you would describe as a troll. Two feet high, with pale green, pale gray skin, hair on his arms and top of his head. Monsters seemed to have no clothes, but it was difficult to tell as his stomach was hung over his waist. Almost touching his knees, his eyes were a deep green, and he had a large lips and a long, almost canine nose. <coughs> okay. <coughs> okay. Sneezing. Okay. Pukwudgie stood watching her, staring straight at her with no expression, almost like it was stunned to see her. Joan froze and remembers thinking the air in her lawns had been pushed out. Said finally came to and ran back towards the trail, dragging Joan, who was still holding the leash tightly. Although the host change took less than 30 seconds, it remains with Joan 10 years later. She has not gone back to the forest, but feels that might not be enough. Three times since the event, 
She has woken up to find a demon looking in on her. It had never attacked her or spoken to her. She had merely seen it looking through her bedroom window. Staying just long enough for her to notice him. All through time, she claims that she was fully awake and can move if she had to. Another man in Framingham, uh, Massachusetts, had an experience that forced him to remain away from the woods. Tim was in the forest when he saw a bright orb in front of him. Having investigated the paranormal, he was excited and tried to snap a photo with the digital camera. The ball of light disappeared and reappeared a few feet further into the woods. Tim followed. Tim followed. Losing the spirit twelve times before he realized he had traveled more than thirty feet off the past that thickly wooded area. He became scared and slowly made his way back into the woods, only to find a two foot foot man standing there, walking towards him. He turned and ran, looked back, saw the figure move back into the woods. Tim reported that what he saw had walked upright and had used its arms to push something aside when he fled to the forest. He moved with a light slight limp but like a human the second time uh, Tom saw the Pukwudgies a few years later in a parking lot near the some, near the same forest he was listening to the radio at almost a whisper and checking his rear view mirror for the friend he was waiting for when he saw the same small figure of a man everything he saw was identical and the Pukwudgie just stood there watching him the car turned on by itself and the radio began to get louder. Tim pulled out of the parking lot and took a long way home to try and stop his hands from shaking. Although the monster seemed content to only frighten Joan and Tim, there are still physical attacks happening. Several people have been assaulted and one person came down with mysterious illness after seeing them in a cemetery in New Hampshire. Another woman suffered scratches on her arm after falling an orb in a forest in Daunton, Massachusetts. The most disturbing uh, recurring attacks might be taking place at the Pupwoody's favorite hunting ground in the Freetown State Forest. There is a 100-foot cliff uh, overlooking a quarry down as the ledge. There have been many hauntings at this site, but the most frequent experience is an overwhelming feeling to jump to rocks and water below. In the folklore of the Wampanoag, uh, the Pukwotis were known to lure people to cliffs and push them off to death. There have been several unexplained suicides at the ledge, often by people who have no signs of depression or mental disease before entering the forest. Ooh, little bastards, aren't they? Oh man, let's have fun. Make fun, people. Watch you share with your friends. Y'all have fun. Pop, you creep. Okay. The Dover Demon is a small humanoid reported from Dover, Massachusetts. It will be was a subject of an intensive scare during the 1970s when multiple witnesses came forward with their sightings. A Dover demon, described as looking sort of like the gray variety of an alien, 
except that it had skin of rosy orange instead of sickly gray. The Dover Demon had a large head on a small stick-like body. It can be bipedal but often travels on all fours or switches back and forth between the two modes of locomotion. It had eyes that glows, sometimes orange, sometimes green. It did not seem to wear any clothing unless the clothing fits tightly in the same color and is the same color as its body. Unlike the greys, the Dover Demon does not seem to be associated with the UFOs as it just wanders around on its own. Cryptologists seldom show interest in the Dover Demon. Mainstream cryptologists are really willing to continuously investigate humanoids other than hairy humanoids. It seems sightings only happen during a short time period. The most claim that sightings have no cease, so the Dover Demon does not seem to be a pressing matter. It makes it freshly filling. A bizarre tale began on 10.32 p.m. on our April 21st and three 17 year olds, Bill Barlett, Mike Mozoko, and Andy Brody, are driving north on the Farm Street Barlett, who's behind the wheel of Volkswagen. Spot something creeping along a low wall of loose stones on the left side of the road. I think, at first, he thinks the image is a dog or a cat till the headlights shine on it, and he realizes it's nothing he's ever seen before. The figure slowly turns its head. Uh, stares into the light. It's two large, round, glassy, lilith eyes shining brightly, like two orange marbles. Its watermelon-shaped head, resting on top of a thin neck, is the size of the rest of the body, except for its over, except for its oversized head. Creature is thin, with long, spindly arms and legs, and large hands and feet. The skin is hairless and pepper, peach-colored, and appears to have a rough texture, like wet sandpaper. Probably simply tells cryptologist Lauren Coleman, saying no more than three and a half to four feet tall, figure is shaped like a baby's body with long arms and legs. Excuse me. Had been making its way along the wall, its long fingers curling around the rocks. When Carlite surprised it, unfortunately, neither of our companions sees the creature. The sighting lasts only a few seconds, and before Bullet can speak, the car leaves the scene. Then the creature is gone, Bullet drops his friends off, goes to the Walpot Street home. Visibly upset, he walks through the door, and Father asks him what's wrong. Bullet lays the story and later catches till he and later sketches what he has seen. After around midnight, 15-year-old John Baxter leaves his girlfriend Kathy Crone's house at the south and a Miller High Road. Then Baxter starts waking up his walking up on the street walking up the street on his way home. Half an hour later, after he was uh, walked about a mile, he observed something approaching him. Because the figure is short. Baxter assumes it's an acquaintance of the his MG Bookert who lives on the street. John calls out and no response. Baxter and the figure continue to approach each other until finally the leather stops. Baxter then halves 
The hall says, well, asks, who is that? The sky is dark and overcast, and he only sees a shadowy form. Trying to get a better look, Baxter takes one step closer, and the figure scurries off to the left. Running down a shallow wooded gully on the opposite bank, as the figure runs, Baxter hears his footsteps on the dry leaves. He follows the figure down the slope, then stops and knocks, looks down the gully. There he sees the creature standing in silhouette, about 30 feet away. It beats molded around the top of a rock several feet from a tree. The tree sees from body remains uh, runs Baxter above monkeys, except for its dark figure eight shaped head. Its eyes to Oh fucking who wrote this? Okay, uh, two lighter spots in the middle of the head, looking straight at Baxter, who after a few minutes began to feel uneasy. Realizing he had never seen a, such a creature before, and fearing that it might what it might do next, he backs carefully up the slope. His heart pounding, he then walks very fast down the road to the intersection at Farm Street. There are a couple passing in the car, pick him up, and drive him home. Uh, skeptics usually claim that the Dover Demon was simply a blossed baby moose limps under unusual conditions that made it seem like a bizarre humanoid that sometimes went out four legs. People also don't believe that that actually points out that all signs happened during the wrong time of the year to, for a moose that small to exist. And they also point out that Massachusetts is far from normal moose habitat. Even if such an orphan moose had been wandering around so close to populated areas, it seems as if it would have been easily captured. If the explanation power of the baby moose explanation appeals to you, then you would get around the worst objection by substituting a creature that does not actually exist in an area and can be born any time of the year a baby calf. An orange-beard orphan calf would be more likely a candidate for such a personally than a baby moose. Other suggested explanations include a monkey, a dog, an alien, mutation, or simply a hoax. Other explanations could have been that escapes an illegal pet gibbon. Some species of gibbon have orange babies, white cheeked gibbons have an orange colored in females. Uh, Dover, 29 years later, William Bartlett, saying by a story of what he saw on, on Farm Street at night. It was an eerie, human-like creature, he said. About four feet tall, with glowing orange eyes and no nose or mouth, and a watermelon-shaped head. However, I have no idea what it was. Bartlett, now a 46-year-old artist living in Nenam, said in a recent interview, I definitely know I saw something. The Dover demon that Bartlett and two other teenagers reported seeing over a two-day span in April of 1977, has since gathered worldwide attention. Uh, unlike Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, and the Latin Americans, Goat Sucker, the Chupacabra. Internet pages are devoted to the Dover Demon. You play the game featuring the creature or by figuring those of it far away in uh, Japan. In a lot of ways, it's some of... In a, lot of, in a lot of ways, it's kind of embarrassing to me, said Bartlett. I, I definitely saw something. It was definitely weird. I didn't make it up. Something I wish I had. Sometimes I wish I had. 
He has made a career as a painter. His work is displayed in galleries. Most goes by Google search on Bill Riley, as it noted, invariably turns up a stage encounter with the unknown. Once his wife, Gwen, browsing a horror section of the bookstore, flipped open an exhibition of monsters, and there was an entry about her husband and Dover Demon. It's a thing that has been following me for years, Barlett said, not the creature, the story. Sometimes I dread every following getting calls about it. Um, <clears throat> thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Monsterlands Podcast, Monsterlands of Massachusetts. You can find more episodes at the website at anchor.fm slash Podcast. You also can find uh, Facebook, find me on Facebook for the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Monsterlands Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at G1Tanner, Twitter at G1Tanner, or the podcast at Monsterlands P. You also email me for uh, questions or submit stories or any, like, uh, want to be a guest or want to be guests on your show at send me an email at monsterspodcast at gmail.com also remember to uh, share this episode and like it and leave a review on whatever thing whatever whatever you want to do you know you know things do uh check out the polls and whatever I don't know I just want to play video games or something really uh have a good have a good day. And uh thank you for listening. And thank you for listening. I'm Tanner. Be legendary. Thank you for listening to this episode of Monster Legend Podcast. Or find more information about Monster Legend Podcast, go to monsterlegendpodcast.com or anchor.fm forward slash monsterlegendpodcast. There you can find all episodes and platforms on which the podcast is on, which you can describe, subscribe to. You also can email me with questions that will be answered on the show. Thank you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.